This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm the rabbi's husband, Mark Gerson, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And today, I am so delighted to be here with my friend, Congressman Mike Gallagher from Green Bay, Wisconsin. So Mike was first elected to Congress in 2016, and he represents Wisconsin's 8th district in the U.S. House of Representatives, and he's a 7th generation Wisconsin native, born and raised in Green Bay. After graduating from Princeton University, Mike joined the United States Marine Corps on the day he graduated and served for seven years on active duty as a counterintelligence and regional affairs officer for the Middle East, North Africa, eventually earning the rank of captain. He deployed twice to Al-Ambar province, Iraq, as a commander of intelligence teams, served on General Petraeus's Central Command Assessment Team in the Middle East, and worked for three years in the intelligence community, including tours at the National Counterterrorism Center and the DEA. After earning his bachelor's degree from Princeton, Mike earned a master's degree in security studies from Georgetown, a second in strategic intelligence from the National Intelligence University, and a PhD in international relations from Georgetown. He recently married a Broadway actress, Ann Horak, who has been in shows such as Crazy for You, White Christmas, and Chicago, and they recently welcomed their first child into the world, Grace Ellen. Mike, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thanks for having me. I can say, in all truth, I don't think I would be married and have a kid were it not for your encouragement, Mark. You were, you were strongly encouraging me that I could collapse the courtship timeline and pull a wedding off in a very short period of time, and that indeed it was my duty to have kids as soon as possible. So I thank you for that. Well, th- thank you. Uh, h- how quickly was the courtship process now that it's long over? I think we got married a year and three months after we first met, roughly. And then our child came into the world almost nine months to the day from our wedding. So I won't elaborate Blessing on that God. further. But it's about, it's about as quick as one could, could move. Well, that, that's, that's great. Well, after uh, meeting Anne, uh, my advice to you to move fast was about the easiest piece of advice one could ever give. So, uh, and here it all worked out. Now you have uh, Grace Ellen. So, um, Mike, when we first discussed this podcast, I said uh, you could pick any passage from the Torah or the prophets, and you picked Judges uh, 6.15. So uh, why don't you tell the listeners um, what that passage is, what the context for the passage is, and why it is so meaningful to you. Okay, well, let me put this in context and stop me or or interject at any point. So this all goes back to my time in the Marine Corps. And what most people don't realize is that most people in the Marine Corps have a call sign, even if they're not an aviator, right? So think Top Gun, which I know is Navy pilots, but we know that pilots have call signs, right? And those are given to them, I think, at flight school or on their first deployment, Maverick, Iceman, Goose, Slider, et cetera, et cetera. That's a unique thing for the aviation community. That follows them throughout their entire career. But I was not an aviator. But when you're deployed, your unit has a call sign that you use when you're communicating. It's part of, you know, it's a small operational security measure. And I was part of a small human intelligence team that was attached to an infantry battalion that had its own call sign. 
and we had a separate call sign. So imagine we were out on patrol. We would say, hey, uh, the call sign of the infantry battalion was Warlord, and ours was Gideon. And I chose Gideon. I was referred to as Gideon Six. Six meant that I was the commanding officer of my unit, primarily because I view Gideon in the Bible, in the book of Judges, as the first intelligence officer in recorded history. And we traditionally think of of Gideon's story as one of God rewarding those who have faith in him. But from an operational perspective, there's a lot to admire from Gideon's tradecraft, from an intelligence perspective. So if you review the facts, right, I mean, we, we remember probably more than anything else when God, you know, goes to Gideon and says, okay, you're, you're going to defeat the Midianites, but you have too many people. They had 32,000 soldiers. If you defeat them with 32,000 soldiers, everyone's going to think it was just the Israelites and not God who did it. Right. Uh, so, so God's command, Gideon says, anyone's afraid, take off. So 22,000 leave, leaving 10,000 left. And God says, nope, that's still too many. So at God's command, Gideon takes the 10,000 to the water and he separates them between those who lap the water up using their hands and those that kneel down. And he dismisses the latter. That leaves 300. So this sort of becomes a David versus Goliath tale, the original 300 if you will, uh, because it's 300 guys against Midianites and Amalekites and Ketamites who I think they describe as thick as locusts. Their camels could not be counted for there were as many as sands on the seashore. But from a military perspective, how this happens is pretty interesting, right? After he sends away 30,000 soldiers, Gideon is left with a vastly inferior force facing an army. And the first thing he does, like any good intel officer, is scout the enemy's position. He gets as close enough as possible to listen to their conversation. And it turns out to be a worthwhile trip because he hears the guards discussing a dream they had about a loaf of barley attacking their camp and, and recognize that the barley represents Gideon and his army. And in other words, even before the battles even started, he's in their head. He's weakening their, he, he's screwing up their OODA loop, as we would call it in the Marine Corps, their ability to, to observe, orient, decide, and act, to focus on the coming fight. And once Gideon's ready to attack, he positions his 300 guys around the entirety of the Midian camp. And in a brilliant deception, he has his soldiers cause an enormous distraction by blowing horns and breaking jars to give the appearance of a large army. The Midianites panic, and in the confusion, they slay each other. And so I love this story because from a Marine Corps perspective, it was, you know, a small but fearless force reflecting how the Marine Corps views itself, right? And rather than winning the day through superior firepower, Gideon uses intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, psychological warfare, and guile to defeat his enemy on the field of battle. And one of them, yeah, go ahead. Does it it ever make military sense for a force of 300 people to be superior to a force of 30,000 people? Because as you said, Gideon starts with 30,000. God says way too many, then, then takes it down again to 300. Why does it make military sense that you would be better with 300 people than with tens of thousands? Well, it, oftentimes it doesn't, except I would say one of the things we learned the hard way in Iraq was that we were confronted with a numerically inferior and vastly technologically inferior force who was often confounding us at every step because they understood the local population. They were part of the local population. We had a poor mm-hmm. understanding of the culture. And it just goes to show, I think, if you have, I mean, with better knowledge, uh, with a better understanding of the environment, which is the essence of military intelligence, you can overcome even seemingly insurmountable odds, uh, particularly if you're operating in the defense. Um, but there's a lot of different ways to go with that. The thing I would say is, and, and that was my job, right? To, to know more about the enemy and the environment than anybody else. And that was what my team did. 
That's how we kept our supported infantry battalion safe and allowed them to accomplish the mission. But what I didn't know at the time and what became apparent to me later, because all this happens in Judges chapter seven, sort of the fun part of this. If you go back to the previous chapter in Judges six, where the verse you referenced, Judges 6.15, is when Gideon is initially called by God to save Israel. And he says, please, my Lord, how can I save Israel? I've always loved this phrase. He says, my family is the meanest in Manasseh, and I am the most insignificant in my father's house. In other words, you know, the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and calls him a mighty warrior. And his first reaction is, Who, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm like in the poorest family in this tribe, right? Uh, and, 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 I'm, and I'm the youngest. And yeah, you know, it's, it, it's hard to say the phrase God hates. But in the Bible, God hates two things, at least two, but certainly two things, idolatry and primogeniture. You know, he's constantly subverting the, the, the notion that the privilege should go to the firstborn whether it's with Cain and Abel, uh, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, David and his brothers. God hates the idea that the firstborn should get the privilege. So when you pointed out 615, this is yet another example of it, where Gideon says, not only are we the meanest, we we the lowest, the weakest, but I'm the lowest of the low because I'm the youngest of the weakest. But God, who's always subverting primogeniture, says, that's why I'm choosing you. A hundred percent. I always have this image in my head of the, the messenger of the Lord coming to Gideon and saying, mighty warrior. And he's like, does a triple take, looks around. That's and beautiful. Like, like yeah. who are you talking to? Also, this is one of the, this, I mean, this is, this is one of the themes I, that I think connects both the Old and the New Testament. And, and it's this, this idea of God reaching out to the most unusual of servants to work through them. And Gideon is a great example of that. But what's also interesting about the story for me, beyond the fact that it starts with yet another example of Israel having totally screwed up, right? They, they were worshiping Baal or Baal. Uh, God delivered them to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites with their allies are constantly coming to ravage their crops and livestock, and they're reduced to utter poverty. So the Lord comes to Gideon, and you know this all ensues, and Gideon is not immediately convinced, right? Not only because he doesn't think he's worthy, but he's, I think he says, you know, if you're God, why has this all happened to us? Where are God's wondrous deeds, right? Why you, you brought us from Egypt, but now we're basically slaves in a, in a different way, right? And this is like, this is just the story of, of humanity, both self-doubt, doubting God, and this is certainly the story of Israel. And, and his doubt is so strong that he requires not one, not two, but three signs from God to basically prove it, right? Three miracles, and at the first one's not enough. He asks for, he convinces them for a little bit, convinces them to tear down the statue of Baal. But then he asks for, for two more signs before he goes to, to fight the Midianites. So I don't know. I guess, I guess a long way of me saying this story, which started out as this sort of cool military story about victory in the face of fear using guile and deception became a more complex lesson about self-doubt and sin and this sort of cycle of failure and redemption uh, that I think pervades both the Old and the New Testament. So I don't know if any of that makes sense, but that's... No, I think think it all makes sense, and particularly because it really resonates. The Gideon story seems to resonate with the Moses story, which is that God chooses Gideon, God chooses Moses. The one who's chosen, Gideon or Moses, says, it's not me. They have different excuses, but they both say, you must not mean... I think exactly your image. They both say, "You, you must not mean me, and God insists, no, I actually do mean you. But it also really teaches us about God's conception of faith for us, which is God doesn't expect us to have what we might call perfect faith. You know, perfect faith may be defined as 
God comes to you and says, do this, be like, well, thank you. I've been waiting for you. Both Gideon and Moses challenge God. And they say, you must not meet me. And God seems to like that. God seems to admire that. God seems to not expect this kind of perfect relationship. He kind of expects us to be broken people who relate to him in that state as broken people. Now, when you were serving as a Marine officer in Iraq, did you or the people with whom you served have Gideon or Mosaic-like experiences where you're just challenged so much, you're beset by so much sadness, by so much tragedy, by so much defeat that you got to thinking in the great line from Exodus, is God in our midst or not? That's a great question. So I should put the caveat that, I mean, by the time I arrived for my first deployment in 2007, I very much had the feeling that pretty much all the hard work had been done and we were just building upon the sacrifices that earlier units had made. And I was shocked at how built up everything was. My first deployment, I was on a massive base that I think had like a Burger King and I got a a, a traffic ticket my first week for failure to stop at a stop sign. That's what the Marine Corps starts doing when it's when it's run out of real things to that's do. A, that's a great sign. That's sign yeah. things are going well. Yeah, that's sign things are going well, which, you know, for a, a hot blooded young Marine seeking glory and immortality, it was it was very disheartening, right? I, here I had missed my chance to write my name into the the annals of of military history. But I'm just trying to imagine how you get trapped. Like, how how big is the base there that there could be traffic tickets issued on? It was this big base called Al Assad. It was a massive uh, air base under Saddam, and and we had taken over it. I'd say from one side of the base where we were at the regional detention facility, the prison, because we were doing interrogations at the time, to go to the other side, it would probably be a ten to fifteen minute drive. If I'm uh, oh, remembering so correctly, you could, get, you could get a traffic ticket in that. Yeah, in yeah. The military police were fond of uh, enforcing traffic rules. It was weird. I mean, we did, I, we, we were kind of a special unit. So I drove a nicer car in Iraq on my first deployment than I did in real life back home, uh, if you can believe that. And then when on my second deployment, we were in a more austere environment because I was out near the Syrian border. And this is where things got interesting. The first, the day I arrived, I did two back-to-back deployments because in my mind, I was I was already there. I was enjoying. I mean, I, this was. I wanted to get as much operational experience as possible, so I volunteered to stay. I went home for like a month, and then I deployed back to Iraq. And uh, the first day I arrived in country for my second deployment, we had a group of Iraqi, uh, of Al Qaeda in Iraq operatives who were across the border in Syria, crossed the border in the middle of the night, dressed in stolen Iraqi army uniforms, and they slaughtered about fifty people in the local okay. village. And so you got to understand. I mean, at this time. The battalion we were replacing was leaving on a high note. They felt like the counterinsurgency strategy had worked. The surge was paying off before it was paying off in other parts of the country in Baghdad. And then all of a sudden this, like at the very end of their deployment, is this massive signal that something is still totally wrong. It throws everything into chaos. And then really my team spent the better part of the next three months chasing down that network and trying to find one person individual, uh, one person in particular, and we ended up having a lot of success with that, but that was certainly a moment where I felt like, oh my gosh, this is, our gains are so fragile. And if we can't consolidate those gains, and all this means is we're giving the locals and certainly the regional politicians and the politicians of Baghdad a chance to come up with some sort of political compromise where they can live together. If it's this fragile here, because we, we really continue to underestimate the underlying tribal dynamics and focus so much on the Sunni versus Shia dynamics, then it really kind of made me doubt whether we could be successful more broadly in the country. 
But I will say we had a lot of success. That's not to say like we didn't screw up from time to time throughout the deployment. You know, I, I certainly screwed up as a as a leader uh, many times. Um, but that's kind of and maybe that's the story of the Israelites, right? You know, this constant cycle of, of screwing up and getting back on the horse, and it's never like to put it more in a, a New Testament context. It's never, in my experience, a road to Damascus moment where, oh my gosh, you see the light and everything is perfect from then on. It's more. It's more like rowing a boat out into rough surf, right? You're just constantly beaten back by sin, temptation, doubt, and you just got to keep keep going at it. I mean, that's kind of how I feel like with my faith journey. And it also comes through very clearly in the Gideon story that you chose, where so after Gideon and his 300 men achieved this spectacular military victory with the famous Gideon's trumpet and you know scaring the enemy, and they and they succeed against all rational odds, the Israelites ask. Uh, Gideon, will you be basically our political leader? And he says, no. He says, the Lord will be our leader. And then Gideon dies. And then as soon as he dies, they go back to worshiping Baal. That's right. I think, I think there's a moment where he had, he had taken gold from one of his victories and like formed it into some sort of symbol that they then started worshiping that too. And Gideon also had 70, 70 sons too. And so Gideon himself strays from the path, even though they have 40 years of peace. And uh, I, I just always found that to be a very complex and an interesting story. You know, I can't... After, after you alerted me to the Gideon story, which I had not read before you, uh, before you even uh, said you want to do Judges, um, really two things occurred to me. One is, if God hates in the Bible primogeniture and idolatry, you can kind of see why here. Because one would think they should have been eradicated by Deuteronomy. When so much of Genesis through Deuteronomy is anti-primogeniture and anti-idolatry. But here we are in Gideon many hundreds, maybe thousands of years later, and these two things are still persistent. There's primogeniture and there's idolatry, which is that old habits, bad habits die real hard, even when God is specifically involved to get rid of them. That's such a good point. By the way, how how is judges perceived or studied in the Jewish faith? I just don't, where does it like kind of fit in the firmament? Yeah, it, it's one of the, the works of the prophets. And uh, it's a uh, as, as Jews, we tend to concentrate more on the five books of Moses and then the Talmud, but plenty of people can do and should focus on judges. And, and of course, we spend a lot of time on studying Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, but it's, it's right in the Bible. It's in the Hebrew Bible. Okay. But the Torah, I would define as the five books of Moses, but judges is certainly in the Hebrew Bible. It's just not something that I had really thought of before, before you said you wanted to do uh, Judges 615. So well, I think I, I asked for a dispensation. I said, technically, this is not part of the Pentateuch, as we would say, but this is what I find interesting. No, it's not. It's great. Yeah. So what do you think the role of fear is in both military life and outside of military life? Because it seems like fear was a major tactic of Gideon. You know, the famous Gideon's trumpet, the story could not have been told without Gideon's trumpet and the fear they struck into the Midianites. And it was almost like the fear caused the enemy to lower their defenses, which enables Gideon to win. Does in Real military life today, does fear still have a role? Yeah, well, I said, maybe in two ways, uh, defensive and offensive. I mean, I certainly felt I, when you're 22 and you're, you know, doing pull-ups and running around all day, you, um, I guess, sort of feel invincible. Uh, but certainly when I deployed for the first time, even though this was not the initial invasion, even though this was not the heart of the surge, or even though this was not when the bottom really fell out of the country in 2006 with the bombing of the Samara Mosque, like I was afraid. I mean, I, I was I was afraid on multiple levels. One, I remember getting off the the helicopter in Fallujah, 
thinking like I was going to be running into a hail of gunfire or something. Cause that was just my perception is that, you know, everything was constantly exploding in Iraq and it was one sort of small arms fight after another. That was not the case. The base there wasn't quite as built up as the one I subsequently flew to, but it was, it was very, very peaceful. But also I was more afraid just that I would fail as a leader, right? Like that was the whole reason I joined the Marine Corps, not only to serve my country, but to test myself as a leader, to be able to stand in front of a team of Marines, most of whom were older than me and had more life experience than me and see if I could hack it. And so I was always very afraid that I wouldn't measure up. And I definitely had some mistakes, but by and large, I was proud of the job that my team did. So I think, you know, you're always, I think what the Marine Corps does well and what most military units do well is that they create an esprit de corps and a dedication to a mission that is, that, that allows individuals to overcome their self-doubt and their fear and also sacrifice greatly in order to accomplish that mission. Uh, oh, very interesting. So, so the Marine Corps is specifically oriented to minimize or eliminate fear, which is such a liability in conflict and everything else. I would say that. I mean, it may not be the way it's described in Marine Corps doctrinal publication. But, but effectively, that's what happens. Yeah, I remember it. Maybe I'll make fun of my, my friend. That I would always make fun of my friends in the Marine Corps who instantly went out and got motivational tattoos before they had even deployed, before they had done anything cool. And one of my good friends, Ryan Light, got a tattoo on his, um, on his rib cage, I think, that said, the strength of the wolf is in the pack. And it's a very cheesy saying, but at the time it was something that Marines were saying because, and it, it demonstrates a truth, which is that you're thrown into a complex crucible with a bunch of people from different backgrounds, but you're given this sort of shared ethos and culture and shared mission. And it, it just creates a sense of strength that is greater than the sum of the parts. And then for me as an intelligence officer and a student of decision-making, you know, it was just interesting to see the way in which fear could corrupt decision-making processes, not to go full nerd, although we've already crossed that threshold. You know, this is the, this is the famous Dune yes. quote, right? Fear is We're the there. mind killer. So I don't know. And then I, but I think there's a way in which as intelligence officers, you know, we have courses on denial and deception and, and ways in which you can weaponize fear in order to screw up the decision-making cycle of your enemy as, as Gideon did in the Bible. Well, so, you know, when you talk about your friend Ryan's uh, uh, tattoo, it, it really reminded me of something in Judges 6.16. We talked about 6.15, but in 6.16, it says, because this is God, because I shall be with you and you shall strike Midian as one man. So clearly it's the as one man. It's because you're unified that you will be able to win, implying that if you weren't one man, you wouldn't win. But it's because of the unity that you talked about, the Marine getting rid of fear and creating unity. That's right from judges. Well, there's also a connection to sort of basic Marine Corps doctrine, which uh, there's this idea of you you weight the main effort. In, in any sort of operation, there's a main effort and two supporting efforts. But the main effort is the one you designate as sort of the decisive effort. It could be a squad taking a building here or whatever. And the idea is that this unit needs to be successful and the rest of the units exist to support that unit. That's a concept that I've sort of adapted to my daily life where I, every morning I wake up early and I literally in my green notebook, which is somewhere here, I'll like the night before write ME, main effort. And the first, after I do my sort of Catholic praying time and my self-flagellation, I, I do an hour of writing or thinking on what I view as the most important task. The one thing I need to get done where if I do this, the day is a success. If I don't do it, the rest, I'm just- What a great discipline. Defense. Yeah, and that's just sort of, that, and that is how a numerically inferior force can overcome 
uh, numerically superior force if you sort of concentrate your power focus point where it's most where it's most necessary as opposed to sort of defending everywhere or attacking everywhere and therefore attacking nowhere. So, uh, Mike, just one one final question, which uh, derives from um, Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And in the book, he, he speaks of, he said, I, I just ran into a, a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had uh, saved a lot of Jews and then had become a Catholic priest. So he said to the man, um, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said to him, I've learned two things. He said, one, everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. Wow. So Mike, um, in your years of Congress uh, or the military, but perhaps we can focus on Congress, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? That is such a cool story and a great question. Well, I would say the biggest thing I've learned or biggest area where I revised an ideological prior that I brought with me to Congress was, I think my theory of the case when I ran in 2016 as an outsider, as a military guy, was that most people in Congress were either incompetent or just selfish or, or ruthlessly ambitious. And there certainly are those people in Congress who've just become corrupted by the trappings of office and their own ambition. But by and large, I would say most people I've met here on both sides of the aisle are thoughtful, ran for office because they love the country and they want to improve it. And to the extent they fail, it's, it's not it's because they find themselves working through a very difficult system here. So I actually, I think people's intentions are a little bit better than I perhaps thought when I ran for office, if that makes sense. But maybe that's related to the a second thing I've learned, which may relate to the story of Gideon and just the story of Israel itself, which is, I, I think, because the question then is, if, if so many good people run for office with the best of intentions, how do they find themselves going down a very dark and and, and uh, evil road, let's say. Well, it doesn't happen overnight, right? I mean, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intention. I feel like people get corrupted through a slow slide of, of compromises where one day you sort of wake up and you realize, I'm not doing any of the things I set out to do when I was in Congress. And so for me, I've always felt so like- So it's, it's gradual, it's not-, yeah. it's not Yeah, which is it's, like- it's, it's habits. Because, you know, one, one of the great teachings of Judaism is that- our character is determined by what we do, and what we do is really just some of our habits. And so if you want to be a different person, just pick a habit and do it all the time, and then you'll be that person. So, Well, isn't this what like the best, the best theories on decision-making and behavioral change suggest, right? Or this famous book now, Atomic Habits, where your New Year's resolution shouldn't be, I'm going to go to church every single day for three hours, or for a Catholic, I'm going to pray the... It, Start very small with like a very small, simple habit you can change every day, and it may not immediately pay off. But it's like it's like trying to shift a massive aircraft carrier, right? It doesn't turn on a dime, but if you sort of change it by a few degrees, if you shoot the azimuth a little bit differently over the course of a thousand nautical mile voyage, it can arrive at a very dramatically different place, right? And I find that to be true both in a positive and a negative direction. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense at all, but... No, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it reminds me of what the great uh, Kutzker, uh, the rabbi of Kutzker, Kutzker Rebbe said, where he was asked by his students, um, or he would say to his students, how far is it from east to west? And the students would come up with all kinds of answers thinking about how far Jerusalem is from where they are now. And he said, no, it's one step. Interesting. I'd be curious. So the, fir the w one of the first parts of your question was his 
his first realization is that people are more unhappy than they seem. Is that what it was? Yes. yes. And I think in the era of social media, like how many people post pictures of themselves totally. with their, you know, their smiling families and their their accomplishments. But and, but he said this is 1968 from his years of hearing confessions, which is actually such a great great way to understand people. I mean, he's hearing their confessions. Well, the other thing, politics, it gives you a window. I guess the one of the the only real perk of being a member of Congress is that I can get anybody on the phone really that I want, right? Whether it's a billionaire tech investor or a foreign minister of Singapore or whatever, you know, any, an author of a book that, you know, super famous author, all the people that we look like, maybe with the exception of Kanye West, who won't probably won't take my call. All the people we look at as successful, you get a window into it. And you do realize that some of the most successful people out there are also some of the most miserable. And people that may not be as successful or successful, but have nonetheless built their life on a foundation of family and faith and friendship are the ones that are happy. And that may be a boring secret of life to discover, but I think it is nonetheless true. Well, that's, that's such a fascinating insight because it's right in Deuteronomy when it says in, in the commandment against coveting, it says you can't covet, then it lists a whole bunch of things, people's wives, their homes. And then it says, and the Hebrew is the same for anything and everything. So if you just listed all of these specific things you can't covet, why have anything and everything? It's because you might covet the guy's car, but you're probably not going to covet who he is because you don't know how miserable he might be despite all the trappings of wealth, which you can observe with your inevitably fa uh, fallible eyes. Well, look at, look at in Congress how many members of the House will spend their entire time coveting a Senate seat or a governor's seat. Look at how many governors or senators will spend their whole career coveting the White House. Almost all of them will fail to realize their ambition. And I think wisdom, and this is where I've really challenged my own thinking, is like, you have to constantly just stay focused on the task in front of you. And doing that is as good as you possibly can, because that's more fulfilling. And I think also, incidentally, a better way to open up other opportunities. Um, and that's a hard thing to do in an environment in Congress where everyone's always jockeying for position and coveting that committee seat or that Senate seat. And so that it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of uh, humility. Well, has there ever been, I, I know that congressmen sometimes get together for kind of more, whether it's Bible study or some kind of more general, has anyone ever talked about co coveting? Yeah, we have, I, I'm part of a weekly group where we have dinner every Tuesday night to talk and we have members of Congress that are Jewish, Mormon, Catholic, uh, evangelicals. We all just come together to talk about faith and family. And I think without revealing sort of personal conversations, everyone's very candid about sort of success or failures in their career and things they pursued that they, they probably shouldn't have. And there's also been instances where a member of Congress who I may have just seen on TV in the Democratic Party and, and loathed just instinctively because their politics were terrible has come to this forum and I've got to know them as a human being. And I left thinking, wow, like how much of my opinions about other politicians are formed by what I'm seeing on TV. And that's just a bad way to form your opinions of someone and how uncharitable am I being to people? It's really had a, a, a profound impact on me and my, at least an attempt to try and beautiful, like, you know, even the, even the members of Congress that you, you think are like dangerous, right? Their ideas are dangerous, right? The squad, the progressive squad. Take that. You wouldn't think there's anything I have in common with them or anything that like a hawkish Republican like Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio has in common with them. Well, 
when we sent a letter to the commissioner of the NBA protesting the way in which they punished Daryl Morey for tweeting support to Hong Kong, well, who signed that letter? AOC. She was on the letter. Uh, who's been the most outspoken critic of the CCP when it comes to forced labor of Uyghur Muslims? Ilhan Omar. I mean, there, it's just always the Venn diagram may not intersect a lot, but there's always at least a sliver of intersection that you can seize upon to do good work with people that you otherwise may loathe in Congress or loathe their politics. Well, uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher, thank you for such a fascinating uh, session with the rabbi's husband and for really educating me and everyone who listens on not only what happened with Gideon in the Book of Judges, but on the lessons, the life lessons that this great ancient story has for all of us today. So thank you for illustrating that. And thank you for all you do and serving, serving the country now and really your whole life. Thank you, my friend. It's always good to go Old Testament. So brings, That's me, right. brings me back Before to my then. Catholic education. <laughs> and congratulations on Grace Ellen. Thank you so much. Thank you. You are the God of the